Quite a meaningful thing to be with you worshiping this morning, not uh, just because of the partnership that McLean uh, Presbyterian has had with our church plant, but it's because uh, for our family to be back worshiping in the same space that some 13 years ago we came and worshiped in the same spot alongside some of you, uh, that that partnership comes uh, with those friendships as well. Uh, built over the last decade, uh, not just with James and David, but with others. And so it's just meaningful uh, to be here with you this morning. Thanks for having us. I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to open them to the letter of Colossians. Uh, It will be found on page 984 in your uh, pew Bibles if you'd like to use that. If you have a phone or tablet or an electronic device that you'd like to use, I'd encourage you to turn to Colossians now. And uh, please keep it before you uh, as we explore together God's word to us. This letter is written by a Jewish man named Paul. He was a leader, an apostle in the first century church. And it's actually written to a church plant. Paul's friend Epaphras had gotten a church started in the city of Coloss and had shared what was going on in the life of that community. And it's into that context that Paul pins this letter to them. Follow along with me if you would. I'm going to read chapter 3, starting with verse 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for our time together briefly. Our Father in heaven, I ask that as we hear your word, not just through Paul to Coloss, but to us today, that you've preserved over centuries for us to read and wrestle with now. I pray that by your spirit, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So some three years ago, our family moved to Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, That is uh, just across the American Legion Bridge. And uh, it is quite a diverse place. There is no longer an ethnic majority in Silver Spring. Uh, It is majority minority. And it's into that context that we moved and began this work of church planting. As part of that process, engaging our community, I spent time last year, every Tuesday and Thursday, on Montgomery College's campus. It's a community college in Montgomery County that has three campuses, and one of them is just down the road from where we meet for public worship. And so every Tuesday and Thursday, I would go on campus and spend time there. I took an intro to philosophy course uh, and uh, got to know the students there. And what was interesting in the course, part of our assigned reading, which is all new to me. I have a science background, so philosophy is, uh, you know, I began to wade into new waters, so to speak. And uh, uh, one of the assignments was to read Plato's Apology, which details Socrates' trial, where he was teaching people to uh, what the town leaders thought was follow other gods other than the city gods. They brought him up on trial for that. And his life was on the line. And in unpacking his defense, Socrates drops this quote. He says, the unexamined life is not worth living. It's this idea for Socrates that to ask him not to teach people and to have them think through who they are and where they come from and whom they worship For them not to wrestle with those types of questions, what kind of life is that? It's not a life worth living for him. And as I worked this out with students and with myself, it's a question that sits with me. If we had each of you this morning examine your lives, how would you answer the question, who are you? So if we were to ask you, who are you? How much of an examination has taken place? In what ways do you tend to define yourself? Where do you uh, get meaning 
from? Where do you find your identity? What achievement or accomplishment if you got that would mean everything to you? Or if you fail, you would be destroyed. Those are just a few ways to diagnose and get at where you find your value, who you are. And Paul is writing into a culture in Coloss where people are being bombarded with all sorts of ways to think of themselves. So as we look through his letter and how he answers the question, who are you? We're going to take this in three points. Uh, The first will be know who you are. The second is be who you are. And the third is share who you are. Know who you are, be who you are, share who you are. In the first century world for Paul, they were living under a foreign rule. Uh, There were temples to all sorts of other gods that were raised in their city. And they longed for the day in which God would return, when he would send his chosen one to break in and set the world to rights. They viewed that as the last days. If you worship the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob in the first century, and you would walk through the streets and see temples to all sorts of gods, and you would see Roman soldiers parading back and forth, you would long for the day for Yahweh to return to make things right. What Paul is writing to this city about is that God has sent his chosen one. That with the arrival of Jesus Christ, what they viewed, as one New Testament theologian puts it, what they viewed would happen at the end of time, broke in in the middle of history with the arrival of Jesus. And in particular, with his death and his resurrection. And so, in light of that reality, that God has come to save his people, and that he has done it in Jesus, that says something about the pressures with which those in Coloss and for us today, how we manage where we find our identities. If you look with me in verses 1 through 4, Paul writes this, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. For you have died and your life is hidden in God. It's this idea, friends, that in Christianity, what it means to belong to Christ is that not that it's bad to pursue excellence in school, kids. Not that it's bad Parents, for you to pursue excellence in work. Not that it's bad to look uh, for financial security and to plan and to save for that. But that none of those things are your ultimate identity. They are now all subsumed under who you are in Jesus. That is the Christian message. So he's holding this out to them. And in verse 11, he's saying, this is the way it tears down the ways in which you've thought of yourselves before. Here in Christ, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
the ways in which we can find identity in our culture, whether in great wealth and accomplishment, whether you're here this morning and you're struggling, you're under or unemployed, you have chronic health issues, there's not much joy to life. No matter where you're at on those ends of the spectrum, Paul is holding out Jesus to you as your ultimate identity and as your hope in both life and death. That's true if you're here this morning and you've come in looking for a time and place to work through your doubts and questions. If you've joined us and up to this point, you aren't quite sure what to make of Christianity. You're not sure if you buy it. We welcome you and are glad that you're here. We don't want you to be to miss the reality that as Christians, while we sing together and pray together, while we come from different walks of life, that we are all together united through faith in Jesus. And it's an invitation for you to participate in the story of what God's doing in our world through faith. That's how you know who you are. Now, it's important for you to hear this. It's my belief that your identity... And this is, this is fairly simple, but that your identity shapes your life. So that where you find great value, it changes the way you make decisions. Whatever you would say is ultimate for what you're pursuing, that will have an effect on how you spend your resources, your time, your money, your energy, who you talk to, who you avoid. That all of those things are shaped by who you are. And Paul, I think, gets along with that because as he talks about this gospel reality of who you are, he begins to talk about how that shapes how you live. Gospel information always leads and is connected to gospel transformation. And you see that in verse 5 and following where he talks about, now in light of this reality, put to death. Whatever's earthly in you, and he unpacks a list of sexual immorality, speech ethics, the ways in which you talk and treat one another. What he's saying is, if up to this point you have lived a life that's marked by conquest and by accomplishment, and that was the ultimate, then that may have shaped how you treated other people, whom you chose to engage in, how you talked with them. And what he's calling both the Christians in Colossae and us today is to recognize that if we are hidden in Christ, we have to put away that old stuff. It's like taking off an old dirty suit. I used to work in a hospital before going to seminary as a registered nurse, and I worked in intensive care where you took care of very sick people who oftentimes had um, all sorts of uh, very uh, difficult bacteria. And when I would come home having young kids, there was nothing that frightened me worse than the connection of those hospital clothes coming into contact with my kids. And so I had hospital-specific shoes and hospital-specific clothes, and we kept those things separate. And what Paul is saying is, in a similar type of way, you may have lived one way, but it's time to put that stuff off, that in Jesus... It's time to follow his lead, to love and care for one another, regardless how they may help you. Now, if we're honest, 
That's hard, isn't it? That putting to death those things and putting on that new life, that's, that's a big challenge. One of the movies that I enjoy, and, um, and uh, the internet movie database, IMDb, has it ranked in their 250 as number one. Uh, it's called Shawshank Redemption. And in the movie, uh, it's a story of, of two prisoners, but uh, one of the prisoners, Red Redding, has been institutionalized for a mistake that he made most of his life. And uh, when he's finally paroled, when he finally gains his freedom, he narrates how difficult it is to come out of the prisoner mentality and to live in his freedom. And there's this particular striking example where he gets paroled and he's working as a grocery clerk and he has to ask his boss for permission to go to the bathroom. And the boss kind of has his arms folded and he looks at him and he says, look, you don't have to ask to go to the bathroom. You just go. But for Red, who had lived most of his entire life in which you asked permission to do some of those basic things, coming out of that life, even though he now had his freedom, was a struggle. And so for us Christians, much of the things that we may have struggled with whether it was sin done to us, trauma that we have experienced, whether it was sin that we perpetrated, it's a challenge to put it off and to take it on and to put on the new life. It's hard. Again, Paul is pointing you back to Jesus. His response for that is to remind you who you are and where you have hope. He doesn't stop there. He continues and teaches them to share who they are. In verses 12 through 17, he talks about not only putting on new life, but also uh, living that out, forgiving one another, loving one another. In the Atlantic Monthly, there was a piece by Eleanor Smith earlier this year about a man named Christopher Charles. Christopher Charles is a Canadian epidemiologist who was working in Cambodia. And a large part of his work focused on the problem of anemia. Anemia is when uh, you, uh, you don't have enough iron in your diet, and it affects kind of how life is lived. It can cause fatigue. Uh, for pregnant moms, it, it, it can cause um, birth delay and uh, uh, problems, challenges in development. And in the villages with which Charles was working, 50% of children and pregnant moms had this iron-deficient anemia. He wanted to understand how can he enter into that and do business with it. He thought through the normal ways, which is just add iron to their diet. That's the way most of us avoid anemia. And the villagers, there wasn't enough source of food that had iron in it to fix it that way. So he wondered about using cast iron pots. Uh, if you cook in iron pots instead of the cheaper aluminum pots, the iron actually leaches out as the food is cooked into the food, and that would fix the problem. But again, the villagers could not afford those pots. Undaunted, Charles theorized, well, what if we gave them an iron block? 
and asked them to drop it into the pots when they boiled water or they cooked stew, would the iron leach out into the food that way? And then they wouldn't face that financial burden. We could just give them the iron block. And so he tried this. Uh, in the villages, the women uh, primarily did the cooking. And so he went door to door and would talk with women and give them an iron block and say, drop this into your boiling water or into the stew or whatever you're making, and it will help. And uh, he came back after a number of weeks to see how things were going. And what do you think happened? The iron blocks were doorstops and uh, propping up tables and used for all sorts of other reasons. They weren't cooking with it. And Charles thought, okay, what do we do about this? And, and so what he did was he met with the village elders and he listened and he learned about their culture. And what he found is there was a particular fish that they occasionally eat that is uh, well-regarded. Uh, in Cambodian culture, and particularly in these villages. And uh, it's marked as a sign of good luck and health and happiness. And so what Charles did is went and made iron fish, smiling little iron fish that looked just like the fish that the villagers valued. And so he goes back and he hands out the iron fish to the women and says, will you drop this in the boiling water or in the stew? And as it cooks, just trust me, cook with it. It's going to help you be healthy. And they started doing it. The fish became a sign of kind of health and wellness in the villages. And over the process of 12 months, Charles virtually eradicated anemia in children and pregnant moms in these Cambodian villages through doing this. And when he was being interviewed for this Atlantic piece, what he said is the genius behind this fish thing is that it doesn't have to be a fish. The genius behind it is that if you were in a sub-Saharan African context uh, where they didn't really have fish and no one knew what a fish was, you make an iron whatever's important to them. You engage into the culture that you're trying to reach that you're trying to help, and you do it in ways that are accessible and understandable to them. And if you can understand at all what's happening there, then you will understand what we are all trying to do in church planting. If there is a great Christ deficiency in our neighborhoods and schools and workplaces, if there are people whom don't value religion, in fact, they equate it with anti-intellectualism, if there is that going on, in what ways do we choose to engage? And so for this last point, I really wrestled leading up to this. Do I give you a method to go out and do? And as I wrestled with that, I thought, if I do that, it's going to end up like the iron block. You're going to take the method that I give you for all of your various capacities and in what you do and in your neighborhoods that are, are, are likely different from Silver Spring, and you'll go out and uh, it, it may not work. For some of you, it'll be exciting and God will use that, but it'll end up just being cast aside. The challenge in church planting and driven by what Paul is talking about here in terms of sharing who we are is that we do it into specific contexts. Now, I want to uh, make a quick note here that notice the substance of what's being shared doesn't change. It's always iron. 
right? As Christians, we're not relativists. We can't just go out and share with whatever works. We're called to go out and share Jesus. And this truth that God has broken into our world to deliver us, and he's freely offered that to anyone who will engage in faith. But how we choose to share that, that matters. The reality is, my guess, is that Reston is different uh, from Vienna. That Annandale is different from McLean. Uh, you know, that uh, Centerville is different from parts of Fairfax. And that as you think through, instead of giving you an iron block, the challenge for you is to say, how can I be a finance-shaped fish in my context? If you stay at home, moms, caring for your kids, and you do the day-in, day-out work of taking care of not only children but households, what does it look like to meet the Christ deficiency for the people who are facing the same struggles that I do? If you're in law enforcement, if you're in education, wherever you're at, the call for you is to think through what it looks like to share your lives with those around you. If you see what Paul does in uh, 12 through 17, he's saying that this is a corporate enterprise. Christ dwelling richly, teaching one another, admonishing one another, loving and forgiving one another, that whatever we do in word or deed, that we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't possibly tell you how to share who you are in all of your specific contexts. But if I can challenge you to think through what your identity is in Jesus and how that shapes how you live, and then to just live life with the people around you, that is the, by far the most effective evangelism we can go after That's what church planting is all about. It's taking a group of people and saying, how do we enter into a particular neighborhood or context just as Jesus incarnated into our world to save us? How can we go in and give of ourselves and love and word and deed, have gracious conversations seasoned with salt? What does that look like? In my younger years, I spent quite some time as, uh, well, like three summers as a telemarketer uh, selling long distance. Uh, and uh, that was uh, when we used to have long distance plans. Uh, your parents can explain it to kids later. Uh, so uh, I would try to sell people, and it was all about getting the sale. So you would keep track on your sheet, and supervisors would come through, and when you got a sale, you would ring the bell like crazy. I got a sale. And you would compete with one another to see who could get the most sales. And uh, it, it was, uh, it paid well. Um, but it's, it's not how I enjoy engaging people with the gospel in church planting. The telemarketing approach is, is not my own. Instead, it looks a lot more like how we've engaged a couple named Andrew and Tracy in Silver Spring. They were raised in a nominal religious context, didn't have much engagement with the church at all. 
there was some overlap in our lives, and we began to spend time together. Particularly, I would go running with Andrew. He's a much better runner than I am, but he was kind to me. And we would run and talk, and through that, he just gets to know me. Of course, it starts with what my name is and what I do for a living, but over time, it moves beyond that. What do I value? Answering that question, who am I? And over time, he begins to see the way I make decisions, the way I choose to love my wife, the way in which I try to look out for the kids. Not that I'm perfect, but that I treat people in a specific way that's guided by my identity. And that has naturally led to conversations about Christianity to the point where he now professes faith in Jesus Christ and has joined our church plant in the effort. His wife, Tracy, when she came to have dinner with us for the first time, and to hear her tell the story is uh, quite funny, she thought all Christians were weird, and it scared her to go have dinner with a pastor. She just didn't know what to expect. And you know what her chief comment was, you know, her reflection on that after we had dinner? It's just that we were normal. The idea that we would be normal people who don't have it all together and we're not perfect, but we think God is engaging our world. We think he's loved us and he's shown it to us in Jesus Christ, and that's what he's calling us to do. That's how we're doing evangelism in Silver Spring. That's how we are engaging people in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. And God's call to you as a church is to do the same. It's that whatever you do in word or deed, that it's a reflection of who you truly are in Jesus. That is powerful evangelism. And as McLean moves forward to uh, be to meet that Christ deficiency in very specific neighborhoods and contexts, uh, my understanding is that within this calendar year, the goal is to plant a new church. I would encourage you, if that church ends up landing somewhere where you live or you're close by, to prayerfully consider what it would look like to engage in that kind of work. It's a powerful thing to go in and to meet people and to share your lives in such a way that you can genuinely be known and that others can genuinely know you. It's a real opportunity to live out, to share this gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that you have provided for us in Jesus because our lives are hidden in him, because of his work, we can rest. Because of his life and death, we can live. And I pray that individually and as a community, we would be faithful, not to sell people on things, but to share our lives to allow some of the messiness of our struggles to bubble up to the surface. But in the midst of that, for people to see what a beautiful picture of living in grace and community, what it looks like. I pray that for McLean Presbyterian, 
for Mosaic Silver Spring, for the churches of our presbytery, and for the global church beyond, that we would be faithful in all of our specific contexts to hold out you, the resurrected Jesus. Amen.